0: Thanks for checking in on my second podcast. The objective of this podcast, at least two episodes in, is to cover people and events lost to American history. When discussing this topic with a classmate, he had asked if I had heard about the Osage murders. Being raised in Oklahoma, I would say I had more exposure to Native American history than most of my friends Uh, Simply because we focused a lot of time on the forced removal of Native Americans to Indian territory, which is now modern day Oklahoma. But I couldn't really recall anything specifically about the Osage murders. I knew that the Osage reservation was about 60 miles away from my hometown of Tulsa, but that was pretty much it. So I started to do some research, going all over the internet. And of course, Like any good researcher, I started with Wikipedia. And when you Wikipedia search Native Americans, one of the first links that populates is Native American massacres. And I thought to myself, wow, that is really tragic. And when you click on their link, there's actually a list of Native American massacres. I think on Wiki alone, there's over 200 plus. And just to imagine, those are the documented ones. I think it's pretty representative of how our history reflects on Native Americans in general. We all know that history is written by the winner, but for Native Americans, it's almost as if their history is not a part of the conversation. We know that they faced many tragedies, but we leave it at that. We really don't want to reflect because it reminds us of our nation's bloody past. In general, their story isn't up front and center like many other movements. Uh, So when going over this podcast, I'm going to spend a little more time explaining the background, the history of the Osage Indians, uh, the Osage murders, and where we stand today. There's a lot of good research material out there, especially the work done by David Grant, and I leveraged his work and interviews a lot in this pod, so please check out his uh, stuff out as well. So here we go. In the 1920s, the Osage Indians were incredibly wealthy. Collectively, the population of 2,000 or so Indians made about 26, 27 million a year. If you adjust that for inflation, that's about $400 million a year or $200,000 per individual per year, which made them not just the wealthiest people in the United States, but in the entire world. However, the journey up until this point was incredibly difficult. The Osage, at the height of their power, had lands that covered modern-day Oklahoma and Kansas, which extended all the way to parts of Ohio, but with white settlers that quickly changed. The Osage were first displaced from their homes in 1808, Uh, when they agreed to move to a reservation in Kansas for $3,000 and a promise of protection from other neighboring tribes. But of course, when American settlers set their eyes on Osage lands in Kansas, the American government again highly encouraged slash forced the Osage to sell their land in 1872. In a tribal meeting, the chief told his tribe that they should move to an area where the land is rocky and fertile and thus the white man would consider it worthless and will finally leave them alone so they decided to move to indian territory which happens to be modern day oklahoma the osage bought about uh, 1.6 million acres from the cherokee which is about the size of delaware however this forced relocation took a huge toll on the tribe as many died due to disease and exhaustion. Some historians believe the tribe population dwindled to one-third its size just from seven years prior. So again, in 1906, the government decided that they wanted Indian Territory to be a part of Oklahoma. In this process, they pushed for allotment. Allotment is uh, essentially a process that would break up the Osage Reservation lands and turn each individual tribe member into a private property owner. Each Osage member was then allocated 650 acres. But honestly, this was just done to break up the reservation. By breaking up the reservation, you uh, decreased the autonomy and the authority of the tribe, and this made it easier so that white settlers could get what was previously tribal reservation lands. However, there was one interesting component. The chief of the Osage tribe, Chief Big Heart, during negotiations with the government, pushed that the tribe collectively retain the subsurface rights. The rights to anything underground, i.e. gold and silver, but mostly oil and gas. So this resulted in everyone in the Osage tribe having a share in the tribe mineral trust. Additionally, this agreement was written so that the share, or what will be known as the headright, could not be bought or sold. But it could be inherited. So every single member of the Osage tribe, at the time there was about 2,300 members, had this equal share to the mineral trust. So whatever oil and gas mineral rights that the Osage tribe had Essentially, every single member got a check every quarter. And back in 1923 24, that was the equivalent of $50,000 per quarter per member or $200,000 per year. Slowly, big name players such as the Getty family, the Phillips brothers, Sinclair, you know, the dinosaur gas station all started to compete for leases on Osage land and Osage wealth started to grow exponentially. The Osage Underground Reservation, as what they called the oil and gas rights, uh, would create more wealth than all American gold rushes combined. Just to give a little color as to how much each Osage member was making, and how quickly their wealth grew, in 1915, it was $221. Eight years later, that increased 56-fold to $12,400 per member, or as mentioned earlier, $200,000 per year. But unfortunately, the good fortune of the Osage people did not last long. The wealth that the Osage had accumulated made those in Congress uh, uncomfortable and to a degree envious. So in 1921, they pushed this guardian program quote unquote which said if an individual had 50 percent or more osage blood they were appointed this guardian and these guardians were coin deported they uh, would serve as a custodian to the osage by holding their royalty checks and overseeing their finances so anything from literally buying bread to buying a car required this guardian's permission there's a tragic story where an Osage Indian asks her guardian for money so she can buy medicine for her sick child, and the guardian refuses, uh, which tragically ends up with the child dying. This oversight would continue until the Osage Indian could prove in court that they're competent. These guardians were sold as a kind of like a safety net uh, for the Osage because they supposedly didn't know how to prudently spend their money. Uh, So even though on paper the guardian program was meant to be well-intended, but it was really easily manipulated to benefit greedy guardians and their friends. Uh, These guardian roles were obviously highly sought after. Many times it was found that judges would assign certain guardians to their friends And of course, they would get a kickback. Simply put, there was a lot of corruption and envy with the sole objective of swindling the Osage Indians of their money. Soon after the Guardian program started, Osage tribe members started to mysteriously get sick and die. And the weird thing was, is that those who were getting sick, they were relatively young, they were healthy, but all of a sudden they would get ill and then die something just didn't add up and in addition to these young indians who were dying there was a sharp increase in murders of osage indians Uh, obviously this troubled the tribal leadership and so they begged local authorities to investigate these murders and deaths but the authorities didn't really seem to be concerned uh, the tribe actually tried to investigate the murders themselves by hiring their own investigators and their own investigators ended up dead. The tribe, they, they were quickly running out of options. Uh, local authorities were not being helpful. Uh, their own investigations were literally ending up on dead ends. So they started to ask for help from the outside. A close friend of the Osage, a wealthy old man named Barney McBride, went to Washington, D.C. to ask for federal help on behalf of the Osage. On his second night in D.C., he checks into a hotel, and he receives this ominous telegram from a friend that simply says, be careful. Later that night, Barney goes outside with his pistol, and that is the last time he's seen alive. His body is found in a large drain pipe with many, many stab wounds. The media, of course, picks up the story of this murder and uncovers that at least 60 Osage Indians had been killed and their lands had been inherited or deeded to their guardians, who all happened to be white males who are lawyers and businessmen. But remember, the prize wasn't necessarily the lands that the Osage owned but their headrights, or the share to the Osage Mineral Trust. A headright was hereditary and passed to the deceased member's immediate legal heir. One did not necessarily have to be Osage to inherit a Osage headright. But with even media pressure, the feds they couldn't do much since the debts were on private lands. And the investigations were supposed to be led by state authorities, which they obviously weren't doing. However, a short time later, an Osage Indian by the name of Henry Roan is found dead in a car with a bullet to the back of his head. But this time, his body was found on tribal Indian lands, which is a federal crime. And this allowed the BOI to jump in. The precursor to the FBI, or the Bureau of Investigations, the BOI had very, very few jurisdictions. But one of the few areas where they were responsible for was Indian Territory. The lead of the BOI was a 29-year-old man named J. Edgar Hoover, who honestly deserves a podcast in and of itself. Uh, But he really was trying to reshape the BOI, Uh, to transition from its uh, wild cowboy image to be replaced with educated college kids who used all these fancy fingerprint techniques. But what ended up happening is that all these uh, college-educated kids, they had never investigated a crime before. So it's no surprise that Hoover and his team spent two years uh, investigating these Osage murders with no progress. At one point, Hoover actually tried to give the case back to the state because he feared that he wasn't going to be able to solve the murders. So as a last resort, he turned to a seasoned lawman named Tom White to look into the Osage murders. Tom, he's from a family of uh, policemen, His dad was a policeman. His brother were policemen. He was actually married to a Native American at one time. So he had expertise that uh, Hoover did not have on his team. So that's why Tom was the guy for the job. And when Tom first arrives in Osage County, he quickly realizes that no one's willing to talk to him. And when he reviews the police files, he finds that files were incomplete. Certain leads were not investigated. Autopsy reports just didn't quite make sense. So Tom quickly realized that this crime was probably bigger than just Henry Rohn's murder. So he requests the help of additional agents. In their initial investigation the agents struggled for a while. But they got their first break when a local priest asked for their help. The priest informed them that one of his congregants, Molly Eckhart, told him that she wasn't feeling good and she would come to the church frequently so he could tell that uh, her health was quickly declining. And he was particularly concerned because Molly's family had several recent unexplained deaths in her family, including her cousin, Henry Round. Tom White and his team start to look into uh, Molly's family, hoping that they'll be able to uncover something about her cousin's Henry Roan's death uh, and possibly find out something about what's going on with Molly. So they start looking into the family history. Molly has a huge family, so I'm going to try to do my best to uh, orient everyone in the different relationships. But a little about Molly Molly was a full Osage Indian woman. When she was young, like many others her age, she was forcefully removed from the tribe and educated in a Catholic school. Uh, So so she was a devout Catholic, but she practiced many Osage customs and rituals. In 1919, she married a gentleman from Texas named Ernest Urquhart. And uh, Molly and her husband lived with uh, Molly's mother, Lizzie, as well molly was the social one in her group of friends and she always threw these large parties so one evening she's hosting this large gathering that was attended by some of her friends uh, most notably her her older sister anna and after a night of socializing and drinking anna heads out but she never makes it home A week later, hunters find Anna's dead body and the coroner's office rules her death an accident due to alcohol poisoning and conveniently missing the bullet wound in the back of her head. Obviously, the news of Anna's death devastates uh, the family. Lizzie, the mother of uh, Anna and Molly, is particularly impacted and her health starts to rapidly decline and Within a couple of months of Molly's death, Lizzie also dies. Molly has a younger sister named Rita who who lived away in an isolated part and on the countryside with her husband. And uh, when she heard that her older sister and mother died, she, she was just terrified to be alone. Uh, so she decided to move to uh, Osage County uh, to be closer to her sister, Molly. And a couple of months later, someone actually bombs Rita's home, uh, killing Rita, her husband, and the housekeeper. So now Molly has lost her mother, her two sisters, Anna and Rita, and her cousin Henry. Molly and the Osage tribe beg local authorities to investigate the murders, but as mentioned earlier, they didn't provide much help. Molly even hired private investigators and offers a significant reward uh, that would lead to the uh, finding of those who killed her family but had no luck. Nobody was helping and slowly one by one members of the Osage tribe continued to either be killed or die from unnatural causes this is where tom white and his fellow agents started to realize that the tragic events unfolding in molly's life are probably not accidents and uh, most likely related to one another so they started to follow the money and try to understand who exactly would stand to benefit from all of these deaths in molly's family they quickly realized that with the death of molly's older sister anna Molly's mother would inherit her share of the Osage Mineral Trust. And with Molly's mother's death, that share would then be split between Molly and her younger sister, Rita. And with Rita's death, Molly assumed her entire family share of the Osage Mineral Trust. And now all of a sudden, as her priest had mentioned, Molly's health was in sharp decline. Molly had diabetes, and like many people who have diabetes, she needed insulin. And investigators realized her insulin was actually being replaced with small amounts of poison. And the doctors who provided her insulin, well, they're the same people who did the autopsy on her sister Anna and attributed her death to alcohol poisoning and supposedly missed the bullet wound in the back of her head tom knew that the doctors were complicit in the crime but he had a feeling that they were just a part of a bigger scheme that they were simply following orders from someone who would financially benefit from these murders because the doctors couldn't inherit these head rights. So when reviewing their notes, investigators noticed a couple of names that simply kept on repeating in conversations uh, with informants. And uh, those names were William Hale and his nephews, the Burkhart brother. William Hale was a wealthy rancher who had several banking businesses. He was also a sheriff. He called himself a friend of the Osage, and he even built schools and hospitals for their community. Ironically, he was a pallbearer at Henry Rohn's funeral, but somehow he got the life insurance money for Henry Rohn's death, which was issued only one week prior to the discovery of Henry Rohn's body, which obviously piqued the investigator's interest. The Burkhart brothers, Bill and Ernest, they originally came from Texas to look for work in the old patch in Oklahoma. Interestingly enough, Bill, he happens to be Anna's ex boyfriend, and Ernest, well, he was Molly's husband. So Tom begins to interview Hale and the Burkhart brothers' at inner circle, and he discovers that they had actually tried to hire a hitman to kill Molly's younger sister, Rita, in which uh, some people had refused. So that's why they had this information. This gave enough ammo for Tom to arrest Hale and the Burkhart brothers for the murders of Rita and Anna. While in prison, however, Ernest hears from behind bars that the men who supposedly bombed Rita's home, they were found killed. And he feels that his uncle is involved and He feels that even from prison, his uncle's going to come for him next. So he decides to tell authorities uh, that he's going to act as an informant on behalf of the state. And he informs them that his uncle, Hale, was the mastermind behind the murders. And here's the devious thing. It was his uncle's idea that Ernest marry Molly so that when she dies, he would get her head right. So they hatched this evil plan where they would systematically kill off Molly's family members so that all the family head rights would go to Molly and then when she dies, they would be transferred to Ernest. However, at preliminary hearings, Ernest recants his confession as a star witness for the state and ends up as a witness for his uncle's defense saying that he was coerced into a fake confession. But a couple of months later, Ernest is told by his family that his toddler had died at a very young age and this made him have a change of heart. He then pleads guilty and agrees to testify on behalf of the state where he is ultimately given life in prison. Since Henry Roan had died on Indian lands, his death was a federal crime, so the trial of his murder was in federal court. In court Hale pleads not guilty and despite Ernest Urquhart's testimony that Hale was the mastermind behind this uh, criminal enterprise the jury is hung and they cannot reach a verdict so a mistrial is declared until it's discovered that Hale's attorney had bribed certain jurors so that they collectively would not come to any kind of decision so a second trial is set up where Ernest's brother Brian Burkhart is given immunity and he testifies against his uncle. Hale is finally sentenced to life. So then what happens to the key players of this tragic event? Tom White, the BOA agent, he becomes a prison warden. Actually the warden of the prison of where Hale is sent. So there's actually a story as hale is being walked to the prison gates he is met by tom white who's smiling informing him that he is now his prison warden molly obviously divorces ernest and remarries she actually goes to court and is successfully able to prove her competence relinquishing her supposed need for a guardian but sadly dies soon after uh, unfortunately, Hale was granted parole and uh, Barkhart was uh, pardoned by the Oklahoma governor in 1965. Congress, on the other hand, eventually changed the laws to prohibit non Osage individuals from inheriting the head rights of Osage Indians, and they passed this law in 1925. And not surprisingly, the Osage Indians then see a sudden drop in deaths and murders in, in their lands you may ask uh, why we spent so much time on this particular case around molly and her family and uh, that is because out of all of the deaths that happened on osage county in the 1920s this was the only case that was prosecuted many of the other cases weren't even investigated by local authorities were corrupt judges were corrupt So, I mean, it explains why a lot of these murders weren't investigated because they were murdered on private lands, so the investigations would have to be led by state authorities. The only reason why Henry Rohn's death was investigated was because his body was found on tribal Indian lands, which fell under the jurisdiction of the BOI. Once Henry Rohn's death had had been prosecuted and same thing for Anna and Rita the BOI quickly closed up shop they really did not want to spend any additional resources on these uh, Osage debts even though there were probably countless countless others. J. Edgar Hoover always saw the Osage murders as a stain on his record because he just struggled for a long time in having any headway in these cases until Tom White arrived so he just stopped spending resources on this and uh, that was it there are a lot of osage members to this day who think that their grandfathers or grandmothers were killed because of people trying to get access to their homes their lands or to their head rights experts today believe that uh, even though the official records show that only 26 osage indians were murdered in the early 1920s They believe that that count is actually in the hundreds. And if you think that the Osage population at the time was only 2,000 people and you have hundreds of Osage Indians who were murdered, you're talking about a significant portion that was killed. And you're talking about multiple generations that were raised without a father, without a mother, uh, people who never saw their grandpa or grandma all because of human greed. Uh, in 2000, the Osage tribe filed a suit against the government for not adequately managing their assets through the guardianship program and settled for around $400 million. Uh, this story is has obviously a very heavy tone, and it serves as a reminder that it wasn't really too long ago where people were given guardians Simply because they had a certain percent of Indian blood, which society at the time deemed made them incompetent. There are about 4,000 Osage members in Oklahoma today, but only recently have they started to get closure on what happened to their loved ones. Many don't know why their grandparents died so young. Uh, Since there was no official police investigation. However, uh, because of the work done by David Grant, a lot of investigative work is being done uh, to put some lie to the Osage murders. But what David Grant's work has indicated is that the murderers was not just limited to Hale and the Burkhart brothers. There's a lot of strong evidence that has recently come out that indicates that the circle of those who were killing Osage Indians to get their head rights and their lands was a lot bigger than what was originally anticipated. And the work that is being done right now is trying to identify who those individuals are and uh, give closure to the family members of those who were so tragically lost at such a young age i mean if you go to osage graveyards one thing that you'll see and what investigators have noted is that a lot of people died in their 20s young 30s i mean a lot of people were taken away right when they became parents so there are multiple generations that are impacted by this and obviously this is a time where their wealth was being taken away as well There is a very profound quote that David Grant uncovered when he was interviewing the uh, living descendants of those who died during the Osage murders. And uh, it's summarized as this. Yes, we are victims, but we do not live as victims. And to me, that's incredibly profound. Here's a group of people who, forced from their home, not once... Not twice, but at least documented three times. Their people were destroyed by disease. Their loved ones were killed, as the story illustrated. I mean, their entire narrative is full of tragedy. But as I reread that quote, I'm starting to realize that the Osage and in general people, they're not defined by their pain. They're not defined by the injustices committed against them. Rather, they're defined by their culture, their history, and most importantly, their strength to overcome such challenges that were thrown at them. I was so focused on understanding what happened to the Osage that I realized I really didn't understand much about the Osage people. So I realized at the end, I stopped researching about the atrocities that were committed against them, because to be frank, there are many, but I started Researching about their culture, YouTubing Osage Lion Dancing, looking up their art. Because honestly, that is what their everlasting legacy is. In spite of everything that has been thrown at them, they remain steadfast and strong. Thank you guys for listening to my podcast. Please do check out David Grant's book, Killers of the Flower Moon. David's book does a great job painting the Osage during the Reign of Terror Lastly, shout out to my friend Omer for making the intro music. Please check out his stuff on Instagram at riamo121. That's R-I-A-M-O 121 on Insta. I'll be sure to list my resources so you guys can nerd out. Love you guys. Stay safe.